0: Okay, I think uh, we're ready to get started. Uh, Good afternoon. My name is Tim Lynch and I'm the director of Cato's project on criminal justice. And today we want to celebrate the publication of a new Cato book, Gun Control on Trial, Inside the Supreme Court Battle Over the Second Amendment by Brian Doherty. Over the course of any given year, Cato publishes dozens of books and studies on a variety of public policy issues. And The common thread that runs through all of this work is that you ought to be able to make decisions about your own life. You should be able to decide what schools your kids go to. You should be able to decide the retirement plan that your savings go into. And you should be able to choose the dentist and doctor you go to. With respect to the right to keep them by our arms, we're talking about the ability of people to take actions to enhance their own safety. In my view, the gun control debate can be boiled down to a single basic question, and that is, is your safety your responsibility, or is it somebody else's? The politicians want people to believe that they can deliver safety and security. Here in the District of Columbia, the politicians have enacted one of the most draconian gun control uh, laws on the books, no usable firearms in the home even for purposes of self-defense. But there's a problem with that. We all know that the criminals in the city have guns, and they use those guns against their intended targets. Now, given that reality, the question becomes, why would the D.C. government want to use its criminal law against honest and responsible people who want to use guns to defend their homes and families in self-defense? The Heller ruling, which was decided by the Supreme Court last June, is not just about the proper interpretation of the Second Amendment to the Constitution. It's really an inspiring story about six residents of the district and the team of lawyers who decided that they were going to fight City Hall. And against very long odds, they prevailed. And we're quite proud of the fact that Cato's own Bob Levy spearheaded this effort. Um, It was not uh, a Cato initiative. Bob Levy was a senior fellow in constitutional studies at Cato when he filed the lawsuit. But this was something that Bob was doing in his personal capacity, along with lawyer's Clark Neely, and Alan Gura. Now, Cato came to the support of this effort in various ways, such as by filing an amicus brief in the Supreme Court uh, when it got to that level. But this was a private uh, initiative by Bob Levy and, and his team of lawyers. Now, with this book, Gun Control on Trial, uh, Brian Doherty has shown us once again uh, his talents and gifts as, as a writer. Uh, to produce this volume, Brian needed to read an enormous amount of material on law, history, And criminology. And he distilled that material into what he calls a roadmap for lay people. And I think he does it in a fun and interesting way. And I I, I think it's quite an achievement. One of the challenges that we had during the research stage of the book was how we were going to get Brian into the Supreme Court to witness the oral arguments when they were taking place at the Supreme Court last March. We knew it was going to be. Uh, The court was going to be jam-packed that day. It was going to be a very hot ticket around town, and we wanted Brian to be able there to be in the court to witness the argument so that he could do his write-up for the book. I don't know if you remember how crazy it got during that time, but people were actually bringing sleeping bags to the city, and they were sleeping on the sidewalks outside of the Supreme Court building so that they could get ahead of the line the next morning for the few publicly available seats. Uh, Fortunately, Brian did not have to go through that ordeal. Uh, He is a a writer with Reason Magazine, and he was able to use those journalistic credentials to get a reserved seat in the media gallery in the court uh, when that took place. Um, So the funny thing is, is that here Brian is with his very first visit to the Supreme Court. And here he gets a reserved seat right up front in one of the most historic cases to come before the Supreme Court in modern American history. So uh, my advice to Brian is uh, don't go back to the court. Uh, It doesn't get any better than that. The format for uh, today's program is very straightforward. Brian is going to speak on his thesis for about 30 minutes. Then I'm going to introduce our guest commentator, Christopher Ree, who is going to offer comments for about 10 minutes. I'm then going to return to Brian to respond. Give him an opportunity to respond to anything that's been said for about five minutes, and then we're going to open it up uh, to take any questions and comments that you guys might have uh, for 10 or 15 minutes before we adjourn for a reception upstairs in the Cato Winter Garden. Uh, Before I proceed any further, uh, let me take this opportunity to ask those of you who came with cell phones, would you please double-check and make sure that they are turned off uh, as a courtesy to uh, both of our speakers. Thank you. Brian Doherty uh, actually began his career right here at the Cato Institute as a Cato intern. Uh, He is among the illustrious alumni of our university program. Uh, After his internship, he immediately moved up to the staff of our public affairs department, and then he moved on to become uh, the youngest managing editor Cato has had for our regulation magazine. He then moved on to Reason Magazine, where he has now been working for more than 10 years. He's a senior editor there. Brian has published dozens of articles in all of the leading newspapers and appears regularly on cable television and the other news programs on a variety of issues involving public policy. He's the author of two previous books, including a magnificent volume on uh, the modern American libertarian movement. That book is called Radicals for Capitalism. So would you please give a warm welcome to the author of Gun Control on Trial, Brian Doherty.
1: Thank you, Tim, and thank you all for coming. I especially uh, am pleased to see some of the very important people in this case uh, coming out and the people who were extremely helpful to me in researching this book, from Alan Gur and Clark Neely, two of the lawyers, uh, Ms. Tracy Hansen and her husband Andrew Hansen, uh, Dan von Breichen It's very good to see you all. And uh, thank you for what you've done and for making this possible. Now, uh, my new book tells the story of uh, what I think is fair to call the most important public policy news regarding gun control of uh, not only this short century but uh, the entire last hundred years. And it's not only a great story for – It's not only a great story for – The issue of gun rights. It's an inspiring story about how private citizens can achieve enormous legal change against great odds. And it's a great story for anyone who values citizens' ability to stand up for their rights in America, I think, regardless of where you stand. On the gun issue. Now, I imagine this audience uh, can probably be relied on to keep up with the news, and uh, you probably already know how the story I tell in this book turns out. So, if it's all right with you, I will uh, cut right to the conclusion without being afraid I'm spoiling the ending. Uh, On the last day of the Supreme Court's term, uh, in a 5 4 decision in the case of D.C. versus Heller, the court declared that yes, the Second Amendment does secure an individual right to keep and bear arms and that, yes, the District of Columbia's essential ban on the use of any uh, weapon in the home uh, violates that right and cannot stand. Um, I should point out before I go much further that uh, I approach this topic as a journalist, uh, not a lawyer or legal scholar. I'm trying to explain the story to a a similar audience of interested laypeople in a way that I hope can remain interesting and valuable even to a uh, legal audience, but I'm as unlikely to be as nimble as uh, an Alan Gura would be or a uh, David Kopel or a Stephen Halbrook in, in the depth of legal and constitutional uh, understanding about the Second Amendment. Uh, uh, it would not have been a good idea, for example, to have sent me to argue the case before the court. But uh, that said, I, I will briefly uh, stress both the story of this tremendous victory and also frame it so uh, it can be understood why... Why this victory is so important uh, to to all Americans, even beyond people who think that they have to worry about their gun rights now. The Heller victory was ultimately pulled off by a a very small group of philosophically dedicated lawyers and plaintiffs. These were not people who were gun nuts in any stereotypical sense of the term but thoughtful uh, libertarian-minded citizens who believed that the Second Amendment rights were vital to the American experiment in ordered liberty. They decided that they uh, should craft a solid, clean civil rights case to overturn the most onerous and restrictive set of gun regulations uh, that this country knew, those of Washington, D.C. Uh, now, 2003, when the case was filed, was, was, was a pretty good time to launch this case for various reasons. Uh, gun rights – were a hot issue in a lot of different venues. They were hot in the courts, where in 2001, uh, for the very first time, a federal appeals court in the Emerson case in the Fifth Circuit declared, uh, going against a a half century of what liberal jurists and uh, constitutional scholars had maintained, that the Second Amendment, despite the preamble about how a well regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, did indeed protect the individual right mentioned in the operative clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Um, You had John Ashcroft as uh, Bush's first attorney general in 2001. He was very excited by this Emerson decision. He was instructing uh, various uh, federal uh, attorneys around the country to to pay mind to it. Uh, You had uh, across uh, the ideological spectrum in uh, the legal academy a growing recognition that the collective rights interpretation of the Second Amendment uh, was mistaken. And then the Second Amendment did indeed, just like every other right in the Bill of Rights that talks about a right of the people protect a right of the people, each of us as individuals. Gun rights were also on the rise politically. Uh, You'd seen over the last couple of decades uh, the Democratic Party was uh, largely retreating from uh, from a strong emphasis on gun control after feeling uh, beaten down uh, by the issue in 1994 when they lost both houses of Congress and in 2000 when uh, Gore lost the presidency. Uh, You saw laws uh, loosening The restrictions on citizens carrying concealed weapons spreading across many, many states, uh, from 8 in 1986 to a, a, a de facto 37, I believe, today. And along with that, you did not see any commensurate rise in you know, mass mayhem or, or gun-toting citizens causing problems. You, The American people were beginning to see that there was not any large social problem that gun control laws were solving. So this was the social and legal and political environment in which uh, Robert Levy and his uh, – Team of lawyers and plaintiffs launched this case. Um, it was kind of important to get going on it then, with with a carefully crafted case, since uh, after Emerson there was uh, the the very real fear that uh, some street level criminal might be the one who ended up trying to vindicate uh, his or her first uh, second amendment rights before. The Supreme Court. It would certainly not be the best thing for the Second Amendment if it were a, a carjacker or someone who had held up a Seven Eleven, uh, uh, bringing this issue before the court. So, a a team of of six DC residents, uh, honest uh, across a, a wide spectrum of ages and occupations, law-abiding citizens with convincing reasons for for why DC's barring them from owning guns was harming their rights and and, and harming their life uh, was put together. Um, we have uh, one of those plaintiffs uh, here right now, Miss, uh, Miss Tracy Hansen. Um, and uh, and they challenged uh, – Tim sort of explained to you how bad D.C.'s gun laws were. They, they did amount to an utter ban on the ability to use any weapon, handgun or long gun, uh, in the home. Uh, another thing that made D.C. a, a good place to begin uh, launching a Second Amendment challenge – Uh, was that since D.C. is not a state uh, but a federal enclave under direct control of Congress, the case could uh, ignore the issue of whether or not the Second Amendment applied to the states via the 14th Amendment. And that question is still unanswered today, and we'll get back to why that's still important post-Heller later. Um, my book tells sort of every twist and turn of this story, and I, I'm not going to uh, ruin the surprises or, or go into every detail, uh, but I, I wanted to step back for a minute and sort of frame why the fact that this case happened is so important uh, to all Americans. Now, the plaintiffs in the in the case, which was the Parker case originally, uh, didn't want to have guns just because the Second Amendment said they should be able to. They wanted to be able to have guns because, however unpleasant and occasionally dangerous uh, guns can sometimes be, they are valuable and vital tools of self-defense. And Washington, D.C. was and is a particularly dangerous city. Now, that guns are useful tools against those who would harm us is something that all of us seem to understand, uh, whether we are explicitly for gun rights or not. Uh, We do, after all, with nearly universal agreement, arm our paid civic defenders, the police, with guns. Uh, because of this, uh, many gun control advocates seem to assume, and some of them even have expressed this outright, that we as individuals don't need to have these weapons to protect ourselves, our homes, or our families, because we have professional police to do that for us. Now, this is seems... Blatantly untrue to me and so obviously untrue that it's actually hard to imagine that anyone believes it independently of an aversion to guns that goes beyond empiricism and reason. I mean any time that you might actually need a weapon to defend yourself, whether on the streets or in your home, uh, it's almost certain that a policeman is not going to be there. And beyond that, precedent after precedent has declared that the police have no legal obligation whatsoever to provide protection for you, even when, as in D.C., the government is robbing you of the means to protect yourself. Uh, I mean, obviously, if you or someone else even had a phone to summon the police instantly upon an intruder breaking into your house, uh, to use D.C. as an example, the average wait time for a police response to an emergency call – and this is an official figure, I've had D.C. residents laugh when I told them this, but this is supposed to be the official number, uh, was 8 minutes and 25 seconds in the year that Parker was filed. Um, at that length or much longer, it's still obvious that any life-threatening situation between you and an intruder is going to have been settled by then one way or the other. And if you're not armed, probably not the way you would want <clears throat> Now, when uh, D.C.'s Mayor Fenty uh, was defending his city's gun policies, even on the steps of the Supreme Court right after the hearing, and when he was lamenting their death uh, at at the uh, end of the whole process, he stressed over and over again that the laws prohibiting ownership of guns had somehow made the people of D.C. safer. Now, was Fenty right? Now, if you examine the record of D.C.'s violent crime and murder rates since 1976, when D.C.'s gun ban went into effect, both in comparison with its own past and with the rest of America and with similarly sized urban areas, uh, it sure doesn't look like it. By, uh, by that measure, D.C.'s violent crime and murder rates have become far worse since D.C. passed its supposedly crime-stopping and life-saving laws. A D.C. with guns outlawed has, was by no means a safer DC. Um, I'll, I'll hit the highlights of the figures. I mean, every year but one since 76, the murder rate in DC per 100,000 people has exceeded that in 76. In 10 of those 30 years, it has been more than twice as high. 2006 actually was a pretty good year for DC as far as trying to make the case that uh, its gun laws had done any good. In that year, its murder rate was 29.1, which was its best murder rate since 1985. But still, even in that year, its murder rate was five times the national average and more than double the rate in comparably sized urban areas. Also, the percentage of homicides in D.C. committed with guns, generally around 80%, is higher than the national average for homicides committed with guns, despite guns being illegal in D.C., Um, Even looking beyond D.C., looking at the macro figures in terms of cross-cultural comparisons, you can find very little evidence that a smaller amount of guns circulating in a society leads to a smaller amount of violence. Um, I'm going to hit you with a little bit of heavy sociology from Gary Kleck, one of uh, the leading – A gun-related sociologist, this is something he said in a 1990 address to the National Academy of Sciences panel on the understanding and prevention of violence. Quote, the best currently available evidence, imperfect though it is and must always be, indicates that general gun availability has no measurable net positive effect on rates of homicide, suicide, robbery, assault, rape, or burglary in the United States. This is not the same as saying gun availability has no effect on violence. It has many effects on the likelihood of attack, injury, death, and crime completion. But these effects work in both violence-increasing and violence-decreasing directions, and the effects largely cancel out. Um, More recently, two huge studies, uh, one by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in 2003, reported on its evaluation of firearms and ammunition bans that restrictions on acquisition, waiting periods, registration, licensing, child access prevention, and zero-tolerance laws All show, quote, insufficient evidence to determine the effectiveness of any firearm laws or combinations of laws reviewed on violent outcomes. The National Academy of Science in 2004, similarly. Uh, concluded after reviewing 253 journal articles, 90 books, and 43 government publications evaluating 80 different gun control measures, quote, existing research studies do not credibly demonstrate a causal relationship between the ownership of firearms and the cause or prevention of criminal violence or suicide. I, I think... Uh, This book doesn't bury you too much in in this sort of social science, but it is important to remember that uh, gun bans like D.C.'s are not only bad constitutional law. They're also bad public policy, and that's very important to remember, especially now moving forward, that the battle about gun control uh, hopefully will move more into the political realm and less into the legal realm, though there's certainly a lot of Legal fights to go. Um, it's also worth considering that there's no evidence showing that increasing numbers of guns uh, in the U.S. population has increased either the murder rate or the rate of a uh, fatal gun accidents. While uh, from 48 to 2004, per capita gun ownership in America increased from 0.36 guns per person to nearly one gun per person. Fatal gun accidents per capita over that same period shrank enormously from 1.6 per 100,000 to 0.22 per 100,000. More guns do not equal more crime or murder, nor do they equal more accidental deaths. So understanding that and understanding the convincing arguments that these specific plaintiffs in uh, the first Parker, later Heller case had to to have weapons for self-defense... And also the general principle that the Heller-Parker team was trying to vindicate, the principle that normal law-abiding citizens should have the right to use weapons for self-defense, you can see that gun laws are not – or the existence of guns rather, the presence of guns in America is not – a problem of such overwhelming social danger that the government has some compelling, overwhelming reason to ignore whatever right is contained in the Second Amendment. To repeat, the laws were not just bad constitutionally, they were bad public policy. Um, there are so many interesting twists and turns in this case. I'm going to kind of cut to the end uh, of it where I think some of the highlights occurred and also explain a point that I found is is most confusing to a lot of uh, sort of casual followers of the case, how it was that a case that was called Parker uh, with six plaintiffs ended up called Heller with only one plaintiff. And uh, it, it's kind of a, an interesting story, which I'm going to touch on uh, really quickly. Uh, at the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals level, where there was – as I'll get to in a minute, a great victory for the case, uh, there was also a, a great setback where five of the six original plaintiffs were uh, kicked off the case for a uh, lack of legal standing. Um, now, you might think that uh, Shelley Parker and her fellow plaintiffs all had a good reason to believe that a core fundamental constitutional right was being denied them. Uh, at least, that they should be able to argue that case uh, in front of the court. But by the D.C. Circuit standard, they suffered no specific injury such that they should have the right to sue because the D.C. Circuit has a uh, particularly strange and stringent standard for standing, one established, uh, curiously enough, in a 97 case involving a gun manufacturer called Navigar. Um, I'm actually going to have to quote uh, from the language. This is from uh, one of D.C.'s filings. uh, Uh, trying to dismiss the plaintiffs in Parker. Uh, It claimed that they must, to have standing, quote, demonstrate a threat of prosecution that is credible and immediate or imminent and not merely abstract or speculative. Uh, Translating that out of the legalese, it, it seems that D.C. is saying more or less that since the plaintiffs might be able to get away with breaking the gun laws, since they had no guarantee that they would be arrested if they tried to exercise their rights, that they had no standing to challenge those laws. It's, uh, it's not a standard that I think makes a lot of sense, um, but it did unfortunately uh, lose five of the case's plaintiffs. Now, how is it that, uh, that private security guard Dick Heller, uh, who ended up the only plaintiff in the case, uh, survived this standing challenge? Now, he had been encouraged by his friend and a former roommate, Dan von Breckenruchart, who is in the room with us today, uh, who runs uh, the Bill of Rights Foundation, uh, uh, had encouraged Heller to go and try to fill out a form to register his uh, his, uh, pistol, even though it was understood that D.C. was not going to register a pistol. Uh, Heller filled out the form, had the form denied, but having had a permit denied, The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, they might not be able to understand that having a core constitutional right denied gives you standing, but having a permit denied, that's something that they understood. And so that allowed uh, the case to go forward. Um, D.C. lost at the appeals court level. Uh, in an in a excellent decision by Judge Silberman, which I quote at length in my book. I won't quote it here, but a, it said in great precise form things that pro-Second Amendment legal scholars had been arguing for decades. It was a really great victory. Um, D.C. at that point was actually being encouraged by various of its friends in the gun control movement to maybe just let this thing lie, um, take the hit for the team, maybe adjust its laws in some minor way to not risk... Letting the Supreme Court do what the Supreme Court eventually did, which is decide that the sec- Second Amendment does declare an individual right. Uh, as near as I've been able to understand it, uh, Mayor Fenty uh, refused this advice more or less out of pride. He's a proud man. He, he didn't, couldn't believe that this tiny team of civil rights lawyers and citizens were daring to challenge him and his gun laws. And he wanted to fight it all the way, and he did. And I, I imagine he is regretting uh, that prideful decision now. Um, because uh, at the hearings, um, lawyer Alan Gura, who we were also fortunate enough to have with us here, uh, won the day uh, in an argument where his opponent was uh, Walter Dellinger from the very big ticket firm O'Melveny and Myers, a big man in the Supreme Court bar. Uh, Mr. Gura himself was arguing his very first case before the Supreme Court. Uh, Mr. Dellinger was arguing three that very uh, that very season, and yet. Uh, um, Uh, Mr. Gura won the day uh, with his uh, legal skill and having the right arguments. It's something that uh, Mr. Gura himself said to me, which I quote in the book. You can't necessarily blame Dellinger uh, for not having done a good job because the argument he was trying to make was so inherently flawed that uh, it would be difficult to do a good job making it. Uh, Dellinger started off trying to argue what came to be known as the sophisticated collective right version of the Second Amendment, which didn't say, oh, it's only a right that applies to states to form their own militias, but it's a right that individuals have, but only in the context of being a member of a militia. For example, Dellinger offered that a private citizen could have a cause of action under the Second Amendment if the federal government was interfering with his state's ability to form a militia. Uh, this argument did not fly. Uh, Dellinger was only a few minutes into his presentation when Justice Kennedy, who was understood in this case, as in many others, to be the swing vote, uh, uh, sort of gave a little hint that things were going to go well for the Heller team. He uh, said that, uh, quote, in my view, it, the Second Amendment, supplemented it, the militia, by saying there's a general right to bear arms, quite without reference to the militia either way. And indeed, that was... uh, the conclusion that Scalia came to in the opinion that five of the justices signed on to Uh, Dellinger tried also to argue that the fact that D.C. allowed you to register and own long guns, though it did not allow you to actually load or use them by the letter of the law, uh, that was enough to obviate any constitutional difficulties that might exist in the handgun ban. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, pulling, uh, pulling an argument straight out of the uh, Heller team's playbook, made the First Amendment analogy. He asked Ellinger, would it be constitutionally acceptable for a municipality to ban a books as long as newspapers – which are, of course, a viable substitute means of expression, were still legal. Of course, it would not be. Um, when it was a Heller team's turn, Alan Gura uh, was also asked, as Dellinger was, to explain the meaning of the militia reference in the preamble. Uh, he pointed out correctly that it was there to inform a purpose of the right of the people protected, not to, uh, not to limit the right of the people protected. He uh, ably defended the idea that personal self-defense was clearly built into the whole idea of weapons rights in the founding era. He granted that reasonable licensing might not violate the Second Amendment, but also that we should remember that the very purpose of a constitutional right is that not everything is up for grabs just because a legislature might decide that a certain restriction is reasonable. So when the final decision came down at the last possible moment in the term, uh, Scalia's majority opinion said everything a generation of Second Amendment defending scholars had been saying. The Second Amendment did protect an individual right. The prefatory clause about militias in a free state did not restrict the operative one about the right of the people. That right went beyond just militia service. The relevant contemporaneous debates about the Bill of Rights and state constitutions supported this interpretation. The last time the Supreme Court had uh, essayed the Second Amendment, the Miller case in '39, that precedent was about the type of weapon, not the people to whom the right accrued. Um, they also avoided deciding on what standard of review. Uh, laws that might be said to violate the Second Amendment should fall under, uh, saying that under any of the standards of scrutiny we have applied to enumerated constitutional rights, banning from the home the most preferred firearm in the nation to keep and use for protection of one's home and family would fail constitutional muster. Of course, as many as this room probably know, the decision was not everything that the most hardcore devotee of the Second Amendment might have hoped for. The, uh, the what part of shall not be infringed, don't you understand crowd was was still a little annoyed with elements of this decision. Scalia also wrote in a uh, paragraph that that maybe gets a little more attention than it deserves, but I'm going to give it uh, attention here as well. He wrote that the Second Amendment right is not unlimited. It is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. Concealed weapon prohibitions have been upheld under the amendment or state analogs. The court's opinion should not be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding carrying firearms in sensitive places. So Heller, the Heller decision by no means settled everything about the gun control debate in America, either in the court's or in the realm of politics. It did, however, instantly generate a fresh series of lawsuits, many of them sponsored by the NRA, against various Illinois cities and San Francisco public housing, places who had gun bans that approached or matched D.C.'s in severity. Um, as of now, uh, if I understand the latest correctly, uh, Chicago and Oak Park are the only two of these Chicago-area municipalities that are remaining obdurate in their defense of their gun regulations. Other cities in the Chicago area, including ones that weren't even sued, uh, have quickly backpedaled and are now allowing their citizens to practice their Second Amendment rights. Uh, this includes Morton Grove, the famous home of the uh, what's understood to be the first complete uh, 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 handgun ban outside D.C., uh, Wilmette and Winnetka. Um, The city of Evanston has tried to uh, weasel out of the NRA lawsuit by amending their law to say it's okay to have a handgun if if said handgun is kept at the residence of said person for self-protection. Evanston, because of this, is trying to moot the case. Uh, Steve Halbrook, the NRA's lawyer, is opposing that motion on the grounds that the ban – since it continues on having a gun any place outside the residence, creates a catch-22 about how a handgun could ever actually lawfully get into the residence and that they should just allow possession for any lawful purpose. Now, there's an important question that has to be decided uh, in the context of any of these cases, which was not decided by Heller and couldn't be by nature, which is a question of whether the Second Amendment right actually applies to states and localities and not just uh, the federal government. Um, it's a question that lower, some lower federal circuits might feel because of the standard interpretation of the 19th century cases Presser and Cruikshank, they might feel that this has to be settled by the Supreme Court because most people read those Supreme Court decisions as stating that the Second Amendment does not apply to the states even post-14th Amendment, um, some of the filings I've seen uh, in uh, in some of the Chicago area cases and in a California case called Nordic v. King have made extremely convincing arguments that it was the clear intent of the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment uh, to claim the Second Amendment as a core right of the very variety that the 14th Amendment was meant to apply to state and local governments, that it was a core, core right, uh, one of the core... Things uh, that that uh, that we all need to be protected from that the very sort of post-war Southern codes that restricted blacks from owning weapons were some of the major impetus for the 14th Amendment existing to begin with. Uh, but this question has not yet been decided by the courts, and that will be the next frontier, defining how important and how influential. Heller will end up being, and that decision may come down in one of the Chicago cases, it may come down in Nordyke v. King in California, but uh, it can be expected, at least in the 7th or 9th circuits, to come down soon. Now, I'll wrap up by talking a little bit about something that happened this month, or uh, yeah, still this month, that uh, many in the gun rights community think is maybe even more important than the Heller decision, and in many ways, in every way, much, much worse than the Heller decision, which is the election of uh, Barack Obama as next president of the United States. He's a man with a history of disrespect for personal gun possession rights, and he has nominated as attorney general Eric Holder, a man uh, with an even worse record, a man who, in fact, uh, was openly uh, in the signing of uh, amicus briefs on the side of D.C. in D.C. versus Heller. Both men have been strong supporters of restrictive gun control. Uh, Obama did, however, in his uh, campaign at least feel politically pressured to state that he does agree with the gist of the Heller decision, does believe the Second Amendment protects an individual right. Um, And while I don't cast a great deal of weight on the sincerity of that declaration, I do cast a great deal of weight on the fact that he felt it necessary to make it in the first place. While uh, I don't doubt that in his heart and Holder's heart is, is very little respect for gun rights, I think both of them are politically savvy enough and that the memory of 1994 and 2000 are still fresh enough to the Democratic Party and 2010 is close enough that I think it's very unlikely that acting on his impulse toward gun control on the federal level is going to be very high on his list of things to do. And uh, I was talking... A uh, guy out in California named Irvin Nowick who keeps a very close eye on these issues. He also talked to someone who was in on conference calls between uh, both Reed and Pelosi uh, from the Senate and the House who have also confirmed that neither are eager to make uh, their houses be the ones to make any first move on federal gun regulations. Um, and it's also worth remembering that whatever it is Obama may try to do or his administration may try to do, Uh, The gun rights community has something that it didn't have during the Clinton era. It has the Heller decision, which uh, uh, does state uh, that complete uh, gun bans are are off the table. And and that was certainly vitally important uh, to the gun rights decision moving forward. And it was important not just to people who were concerned with gun rights, of course. Um, It was was really vitally important to American public policy in general because it normalized within constitutional law the notion that self-defense is a right. And I think it's very important to remember that self-defense is what this was all about. Um, We all know that guns can be dangerous and guns can kill. But the principle that Heller vindicated, a principle that's at the core of Western liberalism, self-defense – is not about killing. It is for life. Now, those who believe in a strong activist of his government generally do so because they fear and understand the potential savagery of human social life. They just, when it comes to gun control, they don't seem to want to allow the individual to do anything about it. And now, thanks to the work of the lawyers and plaintiffs in the Heller case, we know that the Constitution says we can. So, uh, It was a very encouraging thing indeed for me as a long-term libertarian to be able to get deep into this story and report on it because it really is one of the most encouraging and important victories, a case of ideologically dedicated, freedom-minded people pushing a set of ideas against great odds, against great derision for many decades, finally finding the right strategic place to strike and achieving an extremely important victory that's really going to change the shape of this country in important and good ways down the line. It was a pleasure to get to tell their story and a pleasure to get to talk about it with you here today and thank you for listening.
0: Thanks Brian. Our next speaker is Christopher Ree. Mr. Ree is a partner with the Washington DC law firm of Arnold and Porter where he specializes in uh, defense of corporations and executives in SEC investigations. Prior to joining Arnold and Porter, Mr. Rees served in a number of government posts, including counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee, assistant U.S. attorney, and he was special assistant to then Deputy Deputy Attorney General Eric Holder, which as Brian mentioned, Mr. Holder has been recently nominated to be the attorney general for the incoming Obama administration. Mr. Ree filed an amicus brief on behalf of the American Bar Association, which came down on the side of Mayor Fenty and the City of Washington, D.C. So, would you please welcome Mr. Christopher Ree?
2: Uh, thank you, Tim. As, as you mentioned, we, uh, my, my, myself, and several of my colleagues, we did represent the American Bar Association on behalf of the uh, as an amicus party on, on behalf of the D.C. government. Um, and uh, the position that the uh, Bar Association took was essentially that the, uh, the uh, position advocated by Mr. Heller represented a very substantial departure from about 200 years of, of constitutional law. Uh, now, I'm not here to, today to speak on behalf of the American Bar Association, so just to be clear, I'm speaking today as a private citizen. Um, uh, you know, uh, Brian did an excellent job, I think, in the book of uh, talking about how uh, gun rights supporters are often car- caricatured in the media, uh, and actually uh, represent a broad spectrum of people uh, who have a variety of different reasons why they might want to own guns. Um, in the interest of, of not suffering the same fate myself, I thought I would briefly talk about my bona fides uh, to speak about gun control. Uh, I am an advocate of gun control, uh, but I'm also someone who has fired uh, rifles and shotguns uh, in the past. Uh, I haven't held them long enough to cling to them, uh, but I uh, uh, do certainly understand, I think, uh, a, a little bit of the appeal of that, um, I've also represented clients uh, here in the D.C. courts uh, who have been accused with gun crimes and in one of my cases even filed a, a Second Amendment challenge uh, based on the what was then the Parker decision. So uh, although I don't agree with how the court turned out, uh, I still am a zealous advocate on behalf of my clients. Um, today the thesis I want to talk about very briefly is, uh, is that I believe that Heller represents an example of judicial activism uh, that is really cloaked in the language of strict uh, constructionism. Uh, And respectfully, while I uh, uh, I enjoyed reading Mr. Doherty's book very much, uh, I think his reasoning and the court's reasoning in that case are pretty disingenuous. Um, uh, And just to be clear, this is not an instance of sour grapes. Um, uh, J. Harvey Wilkinson, the former uh, Chief Justice of the Fourth Circuit, uh, who is a very respected conservative uh, scholar and jurist, uh, has taken essentially the same position that he believes that the uh, reasoning of the court in Heller represented a real instance of judicial activism, uh, and uh, is not really consistent with the, uh, the the theories and the beliefs that uh, certainly Justice Scalia and his uh, and his supporters have have propounded over the years. Um, I'm not here today to argue about the merits of the D.C. gun law, although I would take exception. Uh, I think the law is not quite as uh, extreme. Uh, as Brian believes, um, it certainly didn't bar the complete possession of all firearms within the house. It simply required that certain firearms, uh, those that were not handguns, uh, had to either be dissembled or have trigger locks. Uh, and that's an obvious safety mechanism, given the very high volume of uh, accidents uh, that often happen inside the home. Um, I believe that that's a legitimate policy debate that one can have. Uh, and my point is that it's not an appropriate policy debate to be having in the U.S. Supreme Court. That is an issue to be uh, argued about and debated uh, in, in the legislatures, uh, where it ha- has been debated and argued for over 200 years. So to bring it into the court, uh, I think it uh, strikes a, s- a certain amount of rank hypocrisy. It's precisely the type of approach uh, that the right has always criticized the left for doing, uh, and I think that's what happened here in this particular case. Um, there are really three elements that I want to touch upon very briefly uh, in making this contention. Um, one, what you had was uh, a democratically enacted legislation, uh, a legislation that was enacted both by the D.C. government and reviewed by the federal government uh, in its, in its uh, capacity uh, as overseeing the district. Uh, and it was invalidated on behalf of a very largely moribund constitutional provision uh, that had been invoked for the first time in 200 years to strike down a statute. Um, And uh, if that isn't judicial activism, I'm not sure what is. Uh, Secondly, my second contention is that this was part of a very conscious campaign by the conservative legal movement uh, to revive this provision. And I think uh, Brian quite uh, artfully in his book actually lays this out, uh, that this had been a priority for the conservative movement for many years. Um, uh, I'll speak about that in a few minutes. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I do think it uh, it reflects the very political nature of of this uh, debate. Uh, and third, uh, the court really uh, essentially ignored a very inconvenient precedent—the uh, 1939 decision in Miller, uh, which had already established a framework for dealing with the Second Amendment—and uh, it sort of tossed that aside, although it did not explicitly overrule that that decision. But again, I think further indication that this was an instance of judicial activism. Um, let me talk to you about the first point, and that is the the revival of this of this constitutional provision. Um, I don't want to get into a debate uh, a debate uh, with with Brian about uh, the importance of self-defense and of golden culture generally uh, in American history. I think uh, Justice Scalia spends a lot of his opinion in Heller, and uh, Brian spends a lot of his book in uh, uh, talking about this this idea, this notion that self-defense is a very critical idea. Brian calls it the most basic human right at the center of Western civil- civilization. Uh, the issue is not is there a right to self-defense. The issue is did the framers of the Constitution, if you're going to be a strict constructionalist, Did they want to use the Second Amendment as a vehicle for protecting that right, or did it serve a very different purpose? Uh, And obviously we can't get into the history here, but I do believe, uh, as laid out by Justice Stevens' dissent, that the very best evidence was that the framers did not intend to use the Second Amendment to uh, implement a broad-ranging right of self-defense. Uh, James Madison, the principal drafter of the Second Amendment, uh, had before him many different proposals for uh, what what might protect gun rights. And some of those proposals were quite broad. They were based on state constitutional provisions, which did clearly apply not just to militias, but also to individual rights to possess weapons. Uh, And what he drafted was an amendment that speaks specifically about a well-regulated militia and that being necessary for the security of a free state. And essentially, I think the court tried to push aside that language uh, to make the Second Amendment read far broader than it is. Of of course, the Bill of Rights was not intended uh, as a universal declaration of the rights of man. It was uh, something that was put forth by the the founders as a way of responding to the anti-federalists who were concerned about the powers of the federal government. Uh, And so I think it would be a mistake to say that just because there was a general concept of a right to self-defense that necessarily the Second Amendment must have been trying to enshrine that within the Constitution. Um, I have yet to hear a real convincing explanation. It's certainly not something I think Brian addressed in his book. For how, if this right was so central and so core to the Bill of Rights, why was it neglected for 200 years? Why is it that the Supreme Court, which, of course, has swung right and left over many years – never came to bring this right up, to invoke this right, to strike down legislation uh, until the year 2008. Uh, Actually, I believe that the Second Amendment is a relatively archaic provision, much like the Third Amendment, which speaks of the quartering of soldiers in one's home. Uh, It's not to say it wasn't an important right at the time of the founding. Uh, But it is to say that there is a real debate as to whether or not it has a real modern application uh, in our own society today when we have talk about federal gun laws that obviously our framers did not envision. Um, The second point I want to address is this issue of of this campaign on the part of the conservative movement. Uh, You know, Brian spoke a little bit before about uh, this David and Goliath story, how this small band of lawyers very successfully were able to take on, uh, Walter Dellinger, and a much, uh, a much uh, more empowered group of people. Uh, I, I would take issue with that because I, I, I think putting the D.C. Corporation Council up against Justice Scalia and uh, Federalist Society members uh, throughout the federal judiciary, throughout the federal administration, uh, and throughout the bar, I, I don't think that's an even fight, to be perfectly honest. Um, uh, as Brian lays out in his book, there really was an effort to Consciously pushed this issue forward into the court. Uh, and it was the Fifth Amendment's decision, uh, excuse me, the Fifth Circuit's decision uh, in the Emerson case which really gave the impetus uh, for bringing this challenge. Uh, I-, I said before I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's certainly the uh, approach that was followed by the NAACP in challenging uh, the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. There was a very careful thought-out strategy. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it is a campaign, and I would like to put to rest the notion that somehow uh, that conservative scholars care only about applying the law as it's written, as opposed uh, opposed to rewriting the law, because I think what happened here was really a very conscious effort to work in concert with judges, scholars, and advocates, all taking the same position, essentially, uh, that ultimately led to significantly changing the way our Constitution has been interpreted. Uh, And I don't think that can be understated. Um, The third and final point I want to make is about tossing aside precedent. Um, We talked before uh, about – I alluded briefly to the Miller decision. The Miller decision is important, I think, because in the Miller decision, uh, the court clearly said that the impetus behind the Second Amendment was this concept of the militia, and the court said it must be interpreted and applied with that end in view. And if you read Justice Scalia's decision in Heller, you will see very short shrift is given to that opinion. There are a lot of excuses for why that opinion is not really relevant, doesn't need to be applied, and why, in particular, the court doesn't need to look at the Second Amendment through that lens. Uh, I think it's a little disingenuous. If the court had wanted to come out and say, we're going to overturn Miller, I think they should have done that. Uh, I think this is something this court does a lot, which is to take decisions that are troublesome precedents that pose a problem to its agenda and pushes them aside because it doesn't want to admit exactly how far out of its way it's going uh, in order to change the law. And uh, as as alluded to in Brian's book, this isn't the end of the agenda. The agenda is to move further further forward. The agenda is to not only challenge federal gun regulations – But it's also to challenge state regulations, which, of course, runs up against prior decisions of the court that clearly hold that the Second Amendment does not apply to the states. And the reason it doesn't apply to the states is because it related to militias. And militias were state entities that were protecting the states against the federal government. Um, So those are the main points I wanted to make. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come here today. And obviously an audience that may may not be receptive uh, to what I have to say, but I'm uh, happy, along with Brian, I know, to, to answer any questions that people have.
0: Okay, Brian, five minutes.
1: Thank you very much, Mr. Ree and, and everyone. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to react to before we get to the questions. Um, this is not something that I touched on at all in my talk, though it's discussed at great length in my book. It is worth noting when contemplating the the vast uh, right-wing uh, gun rights conspiracy versus the poor outman D.C. Corporation Council that for the great, the the largest part of the progress of this case, the the mightiest arm of the uh, the gun rights conspiracy, the NRA, was actually uh, uh, reluctant to uh, be helpful with this case and, in fact, in many ways uh, was actively harmful to it. I uh, don't want to stress that over much, though the book tells the whole story. And in the end, uh, uh, the NRA did uh, get behind the case. But it, it really was more a case of uh, a very small group of lawyers uh, and their clients uh, fighting this, not – the, the behemoth of of the entire uh, gun rights community um i don't think this we uh mr Rhee and i really want or need to re-engage uh the debate before the supreme court obviously of course there is enormously differing opinions about this i found in my researching that i was convinced by the arguments made by uh by uh Alan Gurra and his team in their filings and found uh, Scalia 's reasoning in his uh, in his opinion uh, convincing that in fact uh, there was a clearly stated right a right to keep a right of the people to keep and bear arms that had not been respected by the courts for years and rather than being activists, they were in fact returning to um, what should have been all along uh, the understanding of the constitution and the protection of a clearly stated right. Um, clearly, lots of people disagree. And uh, luckily, uh, we live in a world where if you're interested in digging into this, it's remarkably easy to do so. I want to give a plug to the wonderful website uh, uh, that Alan Gurr runs, dcguncase.com, which has all of the arguments on either side there, which I invite the interested uh, to dig into. Um, and thanks a lot. and we'll uh, We'll take your questions now.
0: Okay, I'll exercise the moderator's prerogative and ask the first question. Uh, Brian, one thing I've heard since the Heller decision came down is I've seen representatives from the the Brady, Brady Center say that there's actually some good things that come out of the Heller decision for their side, and they're so happy about it that they kind of have said it's almost a victory for their side. Would you... Have you heard that comment, and what do you make of it?
1: Yeah, I heard that comment the very day after uh, the first hearing when I went to talk to uh, Denny Hennigan of the Brady Center. Uh, He, like most uh, savvy watchers of this, uh, could could tell by what Kennedy said that it was almost certain to be a 5-4 decision, at least for the individual rights question. It was still up in the air whether or not they would try to sort of twist it around and say, yes, it's an individual right, but DC's gun ban doesn't violate it. There was still that fear, but the individual right part seemed pretty clear. So Hennigan was already beginning just 24 hours later. Um, There's spin on it, and uh, it's certainly spin, but I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. I uh, the, the spin is, as Tim alluded to, that uh, It is their feeling that the gun rights community has generated much of its energy and much of its enthusiasm off of a slippery slope fear that every single gun regulation is just a step on the way to the jackbooted thugs knocking down your door and taking your guns. What Hennigan posits is that with Heller having apparently taken the government's ability to do the complete confiscation of guns, the complete banning of guns off of the table – that now the gun control debate can occur on grounds that Hennigan thinks are going to be better for the gun controllers, which is let's look at each regulation, each restriction on where you can buy a gun and how you can store it and how many you can buy on their own merits, whatever those merits might be, without a fear that it's a slippery slope. Um, I cannot completely gainsay that there might end up being some truth to this. It's way too soon to tell. He also seemed to think that in a a vaguer sense that the sort of energy and enthusiasm of the supporters of the gun rights community might wane. They might feel like, okay, we won. We no longer need to pay our dues to the NRA or Gun Owners of America or or whatever. Um, Again, too soon to see that happening. But the flip side of this, which uh, I think he needs to remember, is that also – in the uh, legal and political discussion about any given gun control regulation going forward, we now have uh, a a Supreme Court decision that declares that there is a core fundamental constitutional right at issue and that perhaps that that right uh, might not be regulatable in all the ways that uh, uh, Denny Hennigan might want to regulate it. Uh, um, So that's what he's talking about. And uh, again, I, I don't think it's ridiculous, but I think it remains to be seen.
0: Okay. Christopher, would you like to
2: comment? I would just like to comment. I think it remains to be seen, obviously, how far the court would go with this and how many other kind of regulations are, are in jeopardy. Um, I do think it's significant that Justice Scalia went out of his way uh, in what was really, in my mind, a remarkable passage. He essentially said, these issues aren't before us. We don't have plaintiffs before us challenging uh, the right of uh, mentally uh, ill people to own guns. But I'm going to presumptively say that nothing in our ruling is going to affect uh, the, the 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 viability of these regulations. That's pretty remarkable for uh, uh, the Supreme Court to, say, prejudge, essentially, f- further cases that would uh, be coming down the line. And I think the reason he did that is because, again, there was this real fear among the law enforcement community, uh, and, and that is reflected in the debate within the Department of Justice about what position to take in Heller. Um, there's a real fear... Uh, that if you adopt the individual rights view, then you really are jeopardizing a lot of gun regulations, which people really like and think are important. Uh, And even the NRA talks about enforcing the laws that are already on the books, uh, namely laws that keep felons, for example, from owning guns, uh, and laws that protect other individuals, people convicted of domestic violence offenses, for example, uh, from gaining access to guns uh, and jeopardizing the, the, the safety of people. So Um, I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if this ends up being somewhat of a pyrrhic victory. I think, obviously, it's an important symbolic victory for uh, the the gun rights movement. Um, But uh, what it means in terms of the number of regulations get struck down, uh, it's not entirely clear.
0: Okay, we're going to take your questions now. I have three requests. Please, when I call on you, please wait for the microphone to arrive so that everybody can hear your question. Second, uh, Identify yourself in any affiliation that you may have, and please keep your questions brief so that we can get to as many people as possible. Yes, Randy Barnett down here.
3: Hi, Randy Barnett from Georgetown Law School. Um, I have a question for Brian. I just want to point out with respect to um, uh, how recent this has been that the Second Amendment gets used, that it wasn't until 1965 that the First Amendment was used to strike down – to hold – a federal law to be unconstitutional. So the use of the Bill of Rights to strike down federal laws is of relatively recent vintage. Uh, Brian, I'm just wondering if in your book you discuss the role that the Solicitor General uh, played, uh, Paul Clement, in both his brief in the case and also his oral argument in the case, which struck me as somewhat different in its emphasis, at least, from the brief in the case. And if you did any reporting um, on on how the Bush administration came to take the position it did and, and if there why why its oral argument might have been slightly different in its emphasis than its brief was, or maybe you don't share that view.
1: Um, I didn't study the oral argument and the brief side-by-side uh, side enough uh, to to fully grapple with that part of the question. Um, uh, you might remember uh, one of the things that was surprising about this, for, for those who don't know all the background, is that uh, the Bush administration was generally thought to be uh, pretty – pro-Second uh, Amendment. Uh, you know, Ashcroft, the first attorney general, uh, definitely was, and yet when it came to this case, uh, the U.S. Solicitor General uh, uh, wanted to argue that uh, the, the Silberman Appeals Court decision uh, should not stand. Uh, Clement, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're getting at, but the, the one thing I did note, and uh, I honestly don't remember how much of this is in the book. I know a little bit of it is. Some of it might just be from my head and my notes. Um, is He definitely made a strong individual rights case, um, but w- w- what, I, what I think he was doing – and again, remember, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a simple country doctor, but uh, w- w- what I think he was doing was he was trying to defend the federal uh, machine gun ban. And Silberman's language, uh, if I'm remembering it correctly, seems so broad as to declare that anything that was a weapon – that you could classify as an arm under uh, the, the Second Amendment could not be fully banned. So uh, Clement and the administration seemed to fear that if the Silberman decision stood uh, that uh, the federal machine gun ban might be at risk and that that was probably the reason for why the administration took the position they did. There was that Novak column right around the time of the hearings that that tried – To posit, uh, if I'm remembering all the details correctly, that Clement was some sort of rogue uh, acting uh, uh, against the actual interests of the attorney general and the administration. Um, uh, No one I talked to seemed to think that was true. They seemed to think that what was going on there was that someone in the Bush administration wanted to placate the gun rights community by telling that story to Novak to make them feel like, don't blame us, blame Paul Clement. Uh, not many people I talked to seem to believe that was the case, that it was basically a, a unified effort to defend the new machine gun ban.
2: Tim, uh, can I just uh, – I just want to address his opening comment because sure. I, I think that's a point that's been made. I think it's a good one actually that uh, the First Amendment obviously wasn't invoked uh, until very recently in our in our history relatively speaking. Uh, to strike down federal statutes or, uh, and certainly state statutes. Uh, and that goes for a lot of constitutional provisions, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment. Um, I find it ironic that uh, strict constructionists would, uh, would really be turning to the 1950s and 60s as a model uh, for constitutional interpretation. I, I, my point is, is not so much that I lose a lot of sleep at night because uh, the Second Amendment has been interpreted the way it has. My point is if you're a strict constructionist, um, it, it's a little disingenuous uh, to be using as a model uh, a, 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 a position where courts come in and define what a federal right is uh, and take away from elected representatives the ability to have those policy debates themselves. Um, so that's uh, th- th- that's my only point. I, I agree with you that uh, the way our Constitution uh, has been interpreted, uh, it is relatively recently that the Bill of Rights has become a really vibrant uh, a, a vibrant uh, entity, and if you're going to do it for the First and Second Amendments, uh, the First and Fourth Amendments, maybe maybe the Second Amendment should be included. I just think it's very disingenuous to say that that's a strict reading of the Constitution.
0: Yes, sir.
1: Hi, my name is J.J. Smith. I'm a reporter with H.R. News. Uh, Florida, Georgia, and Louisiana have enacted laws that allow employees to take guns onto the property of their employers locked in their vehicles. Um, the Florida Chamber of Commerce and the State Retail Federation have filed a challenge based, that the, the challenge is based on the workplace's private property. Therefore, employers have a right to say what's taken onto their property. Can the... Uh, Also, there's a a minor part that says it violates uh, OSHA, uh, Safe Workplace Standards. Uh, Can both panelists please uh, comment on on the grounds for the challenges? Sure. Um, uh, Knowing not a whole lot more about it than than what you've told me, though, uh, I've read a little bit. um, Barring there being nuances to this, I don't understand. I would take the libertarian line that, yes, uh, employers should be able to exercise a certain amount of control over – The bringing of uh weapons onto their property and and i wouldn't i wouldn't interpret that as a a pure uh gun rights question that the the property rights of the employer uh should over in in this case trump the gun owner's right to take his gun where he will
2: and and i'll just be agnostic on this i'm content to let the right fight that one out themselves
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay yes i think i see another plaintiff in the back that's tom palmer
2: Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I was uh, one of the original plaintiffs. I have a question for Mr. Ree. What do you think about incorporation? Two, Two parts. Should it be incorporated, as the first and other amendments have? Second, independently, do you think it will be incorporated? And related to that, what do you think of the arguments given by the opponents, the other side? First, the Second Amendment does not apply to D.C. And second, after that was decided, it only applies to
0: D.C., what does that tell us about the integrity of the lawyers and uh, uh,
1: opponents on the other side
2: well i, I don 't want to get into a debate about the integrity of, of the lawyers i, 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 I don 't impugn the integrity of the people uh, arguing on either side. I know people obviously d- feel believe, de- excuse me believe deeply in their their own positions i, I don 't think anyone is being disingenuous. You obviously make legal uh, stra- strategic calls throughout the course of, of litigating cases and uh, uh, this is addressed a bit, a bit in Brian's book about a concession that uh, Walter Dellinger made when uh, during the oral argument, uh, the question of whether or not there really would be a self-defense exception uh, if someone burst into your house and you shot them in self de- true self-defense uh, with a gun that technically didn't comply with the D.C. law, whether you could be prosecuted in that situation. I, I, I again, I don't, I, I have no reason to, to question anybody's uh, integrity on either side. So just to be clear about that, uh, on the the point of your, your point about incorporation, and, and for those of you who are who are not uh, constitutional scholars and uh, may not know uh, what this refers to, uh, uh, the Bill of Rights was originally uh, obviously intended to limit the power of the federal government. Uh, when the Fourteenth Amendment was passed. Uh, there was a view that it was intended to take the guarantees of the Bill of Rights and to apply that to state governments as well. Um, and that view has never been definitively settled. Uh, the court went back and forth on that and ultimately settled on a concept they call selective incorporation. Uh, that is that many of the Bill of Rights, such as the First Amendment, do apply to the states and limit the power of the states uh, but not automatically, and not all of them do. There are certain provisions, and uh, you'd, uh, I'd have to sit here and think of for a few minutes to come up with one, but there are certain provisions where the court has said uh, it doesn't apply to the states. Um, with respect to the Second Amendment, uh, as Brian pointed out, uh, the Supreme Court has already ruled post-14th Amendment uh, that the Second Amendment does not apply to the states. Uh, and I think the rationale there is if you really believe the Second Amendment is tied to militias, Uh, and that a key part of the Second Amendment was this notion that they were trying to preserve militias as a bulwark against the federal government, Uh, then it really doesn't make sense uh, to have a right against the states because the states are the entities that that create these militias. Um, And that, I think, if you're going to be historically accurate, uh, would be the proper view. Uh, I'm not myself a strict constructionalist. Uh, So, uh, uh, But again, on the interest of consistency, I think uh, I think the right thing for the court to do here would be to say that it uh, it shouldn't be incorporated, um, and uh, and so the states are in a different uh, a different position. I'd also point out, by the way, that a lot of state constitutions do have uh, analogs to the Second Amendment. In fact, they have broader and clearer guarantees uh, for gun rights. Uh, than the federal constitution does, and I think that's exactly what the founders envisioned in the first place. They envisioned that if you had a problem with the state government, uh, that you would get laws enacted at the state level, or you would have constitutional provisions passed at the state level, uh, and you would not be invoking the federal constitution against against the states. Now, obviously, the Fourteenth Amendment changed that around, and uh, for very good reasons. Um, but uh, and there, there's a historical debate as to whether or not the the, the framers of the Fourteenth Amendment. We're concerned about gun rights in particular. Maybe Brian can speak to that. But um, I think it's a very interesting debate. I, I, I do think it comes down to how um, uh, uh, w- whether the Supreme Court is going to acknowledge that there are these precedents out there that stand in its way. And again, will they try and do this dance around these cases or will they confront them openly?
0: See, because the District of Columbia government is a federal entity and the Heller case was brought here in the district, it made it a clean constitutional challenge. Second Amendment, nearly everybody agreed, applies to federal entities. So the Heller case applying here in the District of Columbia made it a clean-cut constitutional challenge. But now as gun control regulations are being challenged in other cities, the lawyers are beginning to argue whether or not the Second Amendment will apply to states in cities such as Chicago and San Francisco. So this is what the attorneys are beginning to argue about. Was the Second Amendment going to apply to these states and, and localities? That's the next thing the lawyers will be arguing about. That's the next issue that the uh, courts are going to be grappling with. Yes, sir. No, behind you. I'll
1: come back down. The Ro- my name is Stephen. Sure. I'm just here today on my own behalf. The Roberts Court um, also enacted a no knock rule for search and seizures by law enforcement under certain circumstances. So I my I have two brief questions. The first is if home if if gun ownership in the home became more common, aren't more law enforcement officers at risk? And is there does the right to self defense include that against law enforcement officials? Uh, should it as for your last question i think certainly uh will it work out that way in court um, uh, one of my colleagues at reason a former Cato guy named radley balco has sort of made it his career uh assessing and uh and writing about these sort of raids uh uh that often have unhappy ends uh, i would say in the current legal climate uh it uh it would s- I-, I doubt very many citizens are going to get away with exercising a right to self-defense, even if it's against a uh, a no-knock raid when they had no reason to know that uh, it was police knocking down their door, which I think is one of the reasons uh, why no-knock raids are, are a very, very bad idea, and, and the, uh, as well to take it another step further, that the drug laws that are almost always the cause of no-knock raids are also a very, very bad idea. A lot of times these problems have deeper roots. <clears throat>
0: Yes, sir, you had a question? Uh, yes, for Mr. Uh, Reed.
3: Um, My name is Jim Duholm, unaffiliated. Uh, assuming the Second Amendment just said that the right of the people to keep and bear arms had not been, shall not be infringed, but the legislative history indicated that it was intended to provide arms for our citizens or, or a state militia, uh, isn't it clear that the operative language standing alone, unadorned by the introductory clause, would be construed as a broad individual right to keep and bear arms?
2: I, I certainly think it's a closer question. I mean, you obviously don't have that situation uh, here. And and in Heller, you have something, uh, I think, strange going on, because Justice Scalia is not someone who advocates the use of legislative history. So... Uh, if you notice in his decision, he does not discuss the circumstances surrounding the actual enactment of the Second Amendment. He spends literally dozens of pages talking about how scholars in the 19th century uh, interpreted the Second Amendment, uh, but doesn't pay any heed uh, to what the framers actually might have thought, because that would be inconsistent with his his view that legislative history is inappropriate. Um, uh, I think... There's a problem with that with with that kind of approach. I obviously think it's far more relevant what James Madison had before him when he was drafting the Second Amendment uh, than what uh, you know people were writing about a hundred years later. Uh, I think the, the former speaks a lot more directly to what the framers might have intended with the Second Amendment. Um, Uh, In answer to your question, again, I think it would be a much closer question. I think in this case, given both the circumstances uh, surrounding the passage of the Second Amendment and the actual language of the Second Amendment, which clearly places a very heavy emphasis on a well-regulated militia, uh, I, I, I think, again, a strict constructionist reading of the Second Amendment. Uh, would lead you uh, to not interpret the Second Amendment the way that the court has. The one other thing I'd add is that I think if you were really being honest with oneself, uh, if you're a strict constructionist, uh, and you don't have to admit this to me, but when you go home at night and look in the mirror, uh, if you're a strict constructionist, your real beef is not with how the court has interpreted the Second Amendment. I think your real concern is with the vast expansion of federal power uh, and and the belief uh, that has uh, taken hold in the 20th century principally. Uh, that the federal government can go into all sorts of areas that it, it didn't use to go into. I think that was the protection that the federalists thought they had against uh, infringement of all sorts of rights, including gun rights. They didn't envision a federal government that would be passing laws uh, that would allow you to strip, uh, uh, to strip all, you know, control all aspects of your life to the same degree. Uh, so I think if you're, if you're being honest as a, as a strict constructionist, I think your real qualm uh, is not with the fact that there hasn't been a vibrant Second Amendment or a vibrant Fourth Amendment or a vibrant First Amendment. Your real qualm is that the Supreme Court has allowed the federal government to expand its authority far beyond what the frame, framers envisioned. Uh, that's not a view that I hold, to be clear once again. Uh, but again, I, 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 I'm a strong believer in consistency, uh, and uh, I think that's a, that's a more uh, honest position.
0: I'm going to give the last word to our guest commentator. Thank you, Christopher. Uh, Everybody here is invited to the reception upstairs. Would you please give a good round of applause to both of our speakers?